COVID-19 pandemic brought healthcare workers into the spotlight, both for their heroic service and for their incredibly difficult working conditions. One of the silver linings is I think it really humanized doctors and healthcare workers in general, who I think brought their stories to a wider public and became these faces of vulnerability and sadness and anger and frustration. For some doctors, the opportunity to speak about their experiences was a relief. For me and, and for a lot of my colleagues, that felt like a big step because we're often expected to don this more somber and detached persona when we step into our workplace life. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the messy and human side of medicine. As a physician and a poet, Laura Colby is trying to make room for uncertainty and humility from both sides in the exam room. Laura Colby's new collection of poetry is called Little Pharma. Laura, you're a doctor, also a poet, and your collection of poetry called Little Pharma has a kind of vulnerability to it that I'm not used to seeing from doctors. Was it scary to be that way since you are both? Yes, absolutely it was. Um, but I think very necessary. For me, that's something that I've aspired to all along to try to find a way to bring my whole self both to the page uh, and also to my patients. But it does feel at times like something that's maybe tacitly discouraged by the notion of the doctor as this more austere figure of kind of absolute authority. So I wanted to challenge that in my work. What is it that you've come to realize patients seem to want from doctors that that makes doctors have to suppress another side of their humanity? Hmm. I think that it's frightening to have an illness and all of us, doctors or not, are going to experience that or have experienced that. And it is one of those seminal life experiences that can make the whole world feel unmoored and that all of a sudden everything that we thought was stable is in motion. And in that state of mind, I think the thing that we all cling to is this idea of a rock or some some person or entity or institution that will be fixed for us and that will hold its place and give us a toehold amidst all of the chaos of what we're experiencing through illness. And so I think from that very natural human impulse, we get this idea of the doctor who is a little bit of a, a mythical figure in that way, and that we have these expectations that the doctor will have those attributes and be able to be that kind of rock. And I think that's something that aspiring doctors, doctors in training and, and practicing doctors try to embody for their patients. But at the same time, I think when there's no space to acknowledge our own fallibility and our own uncertainties and vulnerabilities, we can feel like we're playing too theatrical a part, perhaps, or that we're not really giving patients the whole of ourselves. I'm fascinated by your poem called Cadaver 28, and it gets at this idea of medical people having feelings that aren't otherwise sanctioned or allowed. Tell me about Cadaver 28. This you describe as an older man with boyish hair who you spent weeks or months cutting on and imagined a lot of what his life must have been. Yeah, so it is derived from a kernel of reality uh, in that at the um, start of medical school, you do break into teams with a few of your classmates and you're each assigned a body that you do forge a very intimate visceral connection with through weeks or months of very minute and careful dissection. And it is the strangest experience because you come to know, I think I have a line, I know this body you know, better than my own, which is true in that looking inside of the body of this deceased person gives me a glimpse of the idiosyncrasy and particularity, as well as the kind of universal humanness of that body in a way that I can't even say uh, I'm acquainted with my own self. And it's a heady and startling and sometimes frightening um, inflection point in one's training. 
It may be too long to read its entirety here, but would you please read a large swath of it? Sure. Um, Cadaver 28. Two. He entered my dreams with the grim sachet of a pickup artist. My legs are tired. I've been running through your head all night. Say I see his wife alone at a grocery till, pulling lint from a good coat or raising coffee to her lips, seated across from a grown daughter in a glass-fronted cafe. Will the tips of my fingers chill to some word whispered from the ditch below my throat? Soft, hard to catch. Something like occult, adult, adust, adulteress. He has a blue mole along the beach of his ear. Pre-auricular Venus Lake, I should say. I would know her by the swimmer's hunch, the spring brimming under her feet. He has the averted face of one hearing confession. I would know her by the red beads encrusting the lights in her matchbook. I would know her by the beads on her lip. I am his shadow, long and constant all winter. She, the parlor mirror, flinging beams without his face in her facets, his, her, witness, his, her, white light. I spray his feet to stop them drying out. The way they keep turning into spindled rinds of kabocha, pitted meteorites, or the penitential rasp of winter concrete would be strange to her. He has a silence. I would know her by her hungry ears. That's a fascinating poem. I so admire your mind and where you go. Cadaver 28, I'm coming. My real man kept sleeping. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's such a strange thing to be spending so much time with the body of a man who's obviously, who has nothing to do with your actual your actual life, you know, your life outside of the hospital and the kind of sensory confusion or confusion of scale or of history that can happen sometimes as you pass in and out of the cadaver lab is this particular psychological and historical vertigo, I think, where all of a sudden it becomes very hard to figure out what's up and what's down and what's reality and what is, what is just study, you know, what is just practice. You know, I think for most of us, the language of medicine and the language of poetry wouldn't seem to go hand in hand, but you make it feel so natural. You find a way to sort of read the body and read the medical life like a poem, right? I think so. Yeah. I I feel so lucky to now be bilingual in these two registers, the kind of everyday American English vernacular, and then the language of medicine. And it's this wealth of sheer sonic beauty. I mean, forget for a second what any of the words mean, but there's just these gorgeous, lustrous terms that just feel delicious to say. Um, and all of these arcane descriptions or terms for particular sounds that the lungs make or that the heart makes or for particular shades of coloration on the skin, you know, it's it's incredibly rich and kind of Baroque um, because the idea was to create this language that would be so precise that through your chart notes or through your um, lab reports or your, your other ways of communicating with clinicians, that even if they didn't see the patient you were describing, that they would be able to conjure that person imaginatively. And because of that history of medicine, uh, it gives us this beautifully precise and abundant lexicon. And so I, I obviously love to use it in poetry as as music and as description. Um, I think at the same time, the, the part that can be complicated mm -hmm. about that is that sometimes that very jargon is weaponized a little deliberately to obfuscate or to shut the patient out or shut the layperson out. And make it clear that this is a conversation among doctors and others need not listen or need not be included. You know, I talked with a woman who was relieved she didn't have cancer because the doctor had told her it was renal cell carcinoma. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is kidney cancer. Well, they were really looking into whether she had that or not. 
but she didn't realize it was yeah. even an issue. It was it was another language, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes doctors do that to let themselves off the hook or buy themselves a little bit of time. And if you can keep it at the level of jargon for a while, that allows you to collect yourself and achieve some kind of respectable distance and figure out how it is that you're going to cope with the um, the reality at hand before you kind of level with the patient about what is going on in sort of direct and everyday terms. There's another wonderful poem, Buried Abecedary for Intensive Care, that sort of plays on the idea of this other medical language. But really, it's decoding it to mean the most human things. I would love for you to read that poem in its entirety. Absolutely. Buried Abecedary for Intensive Care. It's called an awakening trial when the pleasanter drugs stop. It's called bucking when the lungs and vent jam wind against each other. It's called clubbing when the fingernails thicken to spoons from lack of oxygen. It's called drug fever when no one knows why. It's called elevation when the eyes can see where the feet should be. It's called fasting when radiology foretells like a speaking goat on the blood-blue mountain. It's called gunk when they suction the trach. It's called HIPAA when no one tells. It's called inspiration just before the triggered cough. It's called jaw thrust when the head is prepared for the Macintosh blade. It's called kin when they don't shy speechless from the gunk, and when they do. It's called labor when breath outmoans machines. It's called manual blood pressure when you hope the machine lied. It's called nitroprusside when the body is flushed like a cinema. It's called octreotide when the blood untucks the napkin of the diner. It's called a pan scan when the body won't tell. It's called a query when insurer and the bank won't tell. Called resuscitation, but it isn't. Called shock when it started as resuscitation. Called Trendelenburg when the feet are in the air. Called under ventilation when the gas is more like the future planets. Called the vagus nerve when touching the neck makes the rhythm stop. Called weaning when the fentanyl hangs salivary at the chin of the bed. Called xeriform when the gauze smells like gin and tonic. Called you when it's a question of error. Called zeroing out when they reset the machines for the next body. That's really a wonderful piece. Thank you. I understand that right now you're working not on poetry so much as a memoir about medical training that sort of explains this whole notion of how we form and grow young doctors into full medical people. That's right. Um, I want to write a book. I, I want, by the time I'm finished with this project, for it to be something that is in conversation, not just with other people who have been through that training system, but with anyone who has been a patient, which is virtually all of us, um, to be able to think critically about, you know, how did our healthcare workers, how did, how did doctors in particular get this way? Why is this the way that we've set things up? And I think it gets back to what we were saying earlier about the unspoken and the implicit, because there's obviously a lot of explicit information that's taught and exchanged in the context of medical education. But there's also a whole set of norms and etiquette and sense of self and sense of how the self fits into the whole that happens pretty silently within medical education. And I'm very interested in teasing that out and thinking about what's really happening there. Give me an example of something that, you know, a kernel of, of memory that you are turning over and thinking about as you write this. Hmm. I have one episode in the book where I'm thinking about a woman who died in the middle of the night under my care when I was a resident. She was in a very precarious state in the course of her illness. But as things were going wrong very rapidly in the middle of the night, I felt very certain that it was all my fault 
and that I had grievously messed up and that I was complicit in that moment. It felt on on a level, you know, akin to akin to murder. You know, I felt like I was uh, directly the cause of someone dying and that this was on me in a very direct way. And I, I don't feel that way about that episode anymore, but I continued to be haunted by this past self of mine who, who really felt that way because I felt very genuine in the moment. And it's made me think a lot more about um, how is it that we are training people so that they feel that their individual effort and their own sense of accomplishment is so directly and maybe kind of toxically entangled with what happens to patients. And I think part of that is because um, our healthcare system as a whole, as well as the way that we train doctors, emphasizes individual excellence or failure, um, individual patients' courses of illness, as opposed to systemic or upstream factors. Um, And we focus very much on these um, monads of, of specific individuals, specific doctors and specific patients, and tend to de-emphasize the way in which we are all caught in this web, a web of factors that creates disease, that perhaps um, doesn't prevent things that could have been preventable, um, as well as the ways that we um, we have webs of, of teaching and mentorship and connection, and we form a, a culture of clinicians rather than um, just being individuals kind of out there in the wilderness. Laura Colby, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was delightful. Laura Colby is a writer, a physician, an assistant professor of medicine, and an assistant clinical ethicist at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. She's a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Her new collection of poetry is Little Pharma, There is no one solution to the vulnerabilities COVID-19 exposed in the healthcare system, but Aren Mathieu argues that poetry can be a small part of fixing those vulnerabilities, from inequality in treatment to physician burnout. Mathieu is a writer, a professor of medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, and a pediatrician at UVA Health. Aren, you wrote a piece where you made suggestions for people in the medical profession, doctors and others, who may want to fine-tune their empathy and work on equity and health. And I just loved some of the brief descriptions you had of the poetry and the poets that you were recommending. You recommended 10, but would you mind if I call out the names of four or five of the books and you tell me just a little bit about what's in store for us with them? Sure. My favorite is the book of poems called Four Reincarnations, written by someone who knew he was dying. Yes, that book is by Max Ritvo. And it's really an extraordinary book because, you know, Max was writing at the end of his life and there's a kind of clarity in the insights that he provides. And I think it's rare to find this kind of imagery in a poet. For example, he writes, When I was about to die, my body lit up like when I leave my house without my wallet. I mean, that that kind of pointedness kind of universalizes something that um, that he went through that, that we will all go through at some point. And I, I think that kind of the wisdom in his poetry is really essential, not just for physicians, but really for everyone. Another recommendation you made was a book by Molly McCulley Brown. It's called The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. What a name. There really was such an institution. Yes, and it was located not far from Molly's birthplace um, near Amherst, Virginia, and where she spent much of her childhood. She's really able in that book to evoke the past in ways that feel very immediate. So she actually spent time at the site of this institution and mined the records there to understand what and, and try to inhabit what the patient experience might have been like. And, you know, in those days, people were institutionalized for all sorts of diagnoses and often horrible things happened to them. Um, there was, you know, 
forced hysterectomies um, for women. People really, really went through a lot. Um, and she was able to kind of invoke and evoke some of those experiences based on the medical records and by trying to imagine what it would be like to be a patient at an institution like that. And I think it's a really important reminder that, um, you know, not that long ago, and even to this day, unfortunately, when we hear about things that are happening to incarcerated people and to people in immigration detention, um, that are really kind of the dark side of, of, if you can call it medicine and eugenics and how we need to be vigilant because unfortunately these things are still happening. There's another book that you recommend by Bettina Judd called Patient. Yes. And this is another uh, poet who's so beautifully able to pull the past into the present. In Patient, Bettina writes about Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy, who were three enslaved women that the physician gynecologist Marion Sims experimented on. Um, and he did not use any pain medication. And it is due to Marion Sims's work that we have many of the modern day procedures and accoutrements of gynecology. And yet we almost never talk about these women. And actually, until I read Bettina's book, I was completely unaware of them. And because of her work and others' work, we're starting to see the stories of people like Lucy, Betsy, and Anarka enter more of the mainstream discourse and be honored and remembered in the ways that they should be, um, but also to contribute again to recognizing that, unfortunately, there is um, a potential dark side to medicine and research that we need to be aware of um, because it certainly is something that could happen again if we're not vigilant. Are these books part of the medical school curriculum, either locally or elsewhere? They're part of my curriculum. <laughs> so I have never encountered them in my own medical training, but I do teach classes with medical students on the humanities and health, and I use a lot of poetry. So I have used works by these and other authors in some of the classes that I teach. What are you noticing from students as they go through these books? You know, students are really hungry for this kind of thing. I think that medical school is a really difficult four years that are characterized by a lot of information that people need to learn and memorize and internalize, and both for patient care, but also for test taking that is, you know, represents these milestones to getting your MD degree. And people miss out a lot of times on the humanities education that would really not just compliment, but I would argue is really essential to being a good physician. Um, and it's not only knowing the history of medicine and the history of where we've come from where we've come as a society, but also grappling with the kinds of ethical questions and the kind of experiential questions that these and other poets really bring to the page and force us to reckon with. And, and I, f I feel like a lot of students really want that in their education. How does poetry especially help achieve that? So a lot of ways. Um, poems are what I call microsensory mini-stories. They're these really often short, not always, but they're often shorter than an essay or a novel. So they really provide a kind of encapsulated experience for a busy medical professional to dive in and, and gain some new knowledge and wisdom. I like that poems sort of shift a power dynamic. So we're taught in medical school to understand and be in control of a narrative so that we can make a diagnosis and heal a patient. And poems challenge us to be uncertain because they're often written in using language in very surprising ways or experimental ways that are different from how we're trained to take in knowledge and how we normally would speak. And poems sort of... Um, they sort of force us to relinquish our role as an expert and to approach the subject matter with a beginner's mind. And I think that shift in power is really important for us as physicians to experience because we sometimes forget that when patients come to the clinic or come to the hospital, it's sort of like they're coming to our house. It's a place where we feel comfortable and we know the jargon and we know the language and we know where things belong and where they are. And often patients are coming to us in moments of vulnerability potentially the best or the worst days of their life. And their time in our our spaces is going to be extremely consequential and could be really potentially traumatic. And so I think it's important for us as physicians, 
um, for just a tiny moment to experience a little bit of vulnerability and a bit of a power shift in not knowing what's going on. And I think poems provide a space for us to safely experience what it's like to not know what's going on and have to figure it out. You've argued that we need to be doing more in medical school to explicitly teach students about healthcare inequities. What are we teaching students now in medical school about healthcare inequities? So the good news is that increasingly medical curricula are including healthcare inequities, but it's often in the form of quantitative information. So students will often get a lot of graphs and numbers and facts. And what I hope is that by sharing poems and stories from people who have had a variety of experiences, not just in healthcare, but in our society, that we can sort of start to broaden the imaginations of students who may have never met somebody who is undocumented or somebody who is, you know, has experienced racism in the healthcare system and start to have them embody that empathy and that imaginative capacity that's necessary to really have an open mind when we approach people rather than stereotyping them or kind of relying on our biases and our shortcuts, which can happen in busy clinical spaces, unfortunately. Is there one poem in particular that you love sharing with students because you can see you can see the connections being made as you share it? Yes. I love to share the poem, Doctor's Office, First Week in This Country, by the poet Javier Zamora. In the poem, he talks about his first visit to a pediatrician after arriving unaccompanied as a nine-year-old boy crossing the desert from El Salvador and crossing multiple borders to be reunited with his parents in the United States. And what I love about this poem is that he so clearly evokes the disorientation of that experience as a nine-year-old, not just from his surroundings and the new family relationships that he was rekindling after being separated for years from his parents, but also sort of the, the estrangement from his own body in going through that process. And I'll just read a few lines of the poem that encapsulate this. I kept turning the wrong knob even after dad showed me, then mom showed me, then we showered together to make me comfortable with my own body again, with theirs, with anyone's. It burned that first time, my skin, hot water, nothing happened. It burned, I'm sure. Seguro que nada pasó. Aran, thank you for talking with me and with Katrison. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Ren Mathieu is a writer, a professor of medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, and a pediatrician at UVA Health. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. What if the difference between the right and the wrong diagnosis is whether or not the doctor believes you? Catherine Malloy is a rhetorics professor at James Madison University. She says our educational level, socioeconomic status, and especially gender can influence how doctors listen to and treat us. Catherine, you write about the importance of believability when we're talking to doctors or nurses. When did you first start thinking about how important it is that our caregivers trust us, believe us, listen to us when we talk about our symptoms? So that's a great question, Sarah. I had the experience of being at a work function here on campus, and I ran into a female colleague, and she was, I was asking her, like, how are you? Like you do when you run into someone you haven't seen in a while. How, how are you doing? And she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not great. I, I've developed all of these really strange symptoms like I have a racing heart and I get dizzy and lightheaded and I and she listed off all of these symptoms and said my doctor put me on Prozac and we're waiting to see if it will work and so far no luck it's not working and I really think that something else is wrong with me and that they're not they're not really looking any further into this and then within like 10-15 minutes I ran into a male colleague from another department and I say, hey, it's nice to see you. How are you? And he says, you know, I've developed all these strange symptoms. And he lists some of the very same symptoms that the woman listed. And then he said, uh, my doctor, they're ordering a bunch of tests. So I, I've got to wait till I get all of the results of these, these diagnostic tests so that they can tell me 
what's going on with me. And I thought, whoa, that's that's really strange that these two people with the same kind of like external believability, they're both, you know, very educated. They have the same career, but the fact that one is a man and one is a woman, they're getting re- treated really, really differently. So then I started to think, I wonder if this is a thing. And I came across just a wealth of stories out there of people who had been misdiagnosed with symptoms that the doctors told them were in their heads, that mostly that they had anxiety and that they had depression or a mix of the two, and their physical symptoms were dismissed as just a sign of that. And I came across this really interesting story of this woman, Lisa Smearl, who was a professor also. Uh, she was 36 years old when she started to have all of these really weird new symptoms. And she went to three doctors over the course of a year. And they just kept telling her, like, you know, your, your job is very stressful and you're a middle-aged woman. And so this is, uh, th- you have anxiety and depression. You know, get, get back to your self-care take nicer care of yourself, um, do your yoga, you know, the kinds of things that we hear when we're told that what's wrong with us is actually in our heads. But after a year, she finally went to a care provider and she just begged. She's like, please just do some, some tests. They did a simple thoracic scan of her body and they found metastatic lung cancer. And so the, the really tragic thing was that by the time they found it, it was no longer treatable and she did die. And she blogged throughout her whole journey with cancer, knowing she was going to die. She said, by the time they found it, it was in my brain, it was in my bones, it was in my liver. She said it was a a really terrible surprise, but it was also a giant relief because she says, you know, I had all these crazy symptoms. Everybody kept telling me that they were in my head. And then it was so vindicating, you know, um, to be told at last that there was actually something wrong all along and I was right. And this is something I've I've read in a lot of people's stories. Certainly, I heard it a lot in the in the 67 people that I talked with that had the same experience of being misdiagnosed with symptoms in their heads when they did have a treatable medical condition all along, sometimes for a decade or more. And so they said it was just so relieving for somebody to finally say, this is what you have. It has a name. It's not in your head. Of course, this can happen to men and women, people of all stripes, and doctors aren't infallible. A lot of times they miss key signals and kick themselves later because they didn't know or didn't think to order a test. But that's not what you're talking about. Right. You're saying you're saying that women in particular, and I'm assuming especially with male doctors? Um, well, I could say that anecdotally, but I'm not sure that's in the literature. But yeah, I would say that women and also what the what the all of the studies that on this topic show is that it's more likely to happen to you if you're a woman. It's more likely to happen to you if you are a gender minority, um, if you are a racial minority, if you are lower socioeconomic status. So it's like you, you can have the deck stacked against you if you uh, have intersectional marks of difference. So yeah, I think that anecdotally, I think that people will say, you know, if you have a, a black woman doctor, this is less likely to happen to you because they themselves have been victim to not being taken seriously and having what they say doubted. And so they're more likely to not do that to you. And and I do think that you're right to bring this up, Sarah, because I don't think that doctors are out there trying to misdiagnose. And it's also important to remember that some people do have physical symptoms that are from psychological causes. And so treating the psychological cause does treat the physical cause, if that's the case. It's that the the hasty decision that the symptoms are in your head can be dangerous if it's just masking this treatable medical condition. And and so this one woman, for example, had celiac disease, which is um, just basically it's a weak gluten allergy that can that can cause a lot of stomach issues and can also cause damage to your small intestine. So she had celiac, but she didn't know it. She was actually a nurse and she kept asking them, can you do tests? I'm getting these weird rashes. I'm having these weird stomach symptoms. And they said, no, 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 no. You have anxiety. Um, you're, you're picking at your skin. That's causing those rash things. Just, you know, stay the course, take care of yourself. And then she went on the paleo diet and all of her symptoms went away. So she actually was able to figure out on her own that she had celiac disease and then was able to say, can I, can you do the test? I think this is what I have because you know, going off of gluten totally made it all go away. But um, some people don't get that lucky where they, you know, experiment on themselves, even unintentionally, and then stumble upon what's actually going on. Are there things patients can do themselves 
that might help ensure they will be believed and will be taken seriously regardless of their identity? So yes, that's what was so wonderful about being having this gift of being able to talk with all of these people who they were, you know, in, in this amazing group of people who did figure out that they had something else going on and they got the care providers to get the test done, to get them to that answer. And so what I found is that they learned to do a lot of preparation for their doctor's appointments. So they did a lot of their own research and it's, you know, they figured out how to get their hands on the most recent high-quality, library-based research they could on what they were experiencing. They took advantage of opportunities to network with other patients for purposes of research and support. They would find, for example, like a a Facebook support group for something that fit some of their symptoms. Um, And and like the woman I mentioned that did, um, went on the paleo diet and then figured out that she had celiac, I found also that they, they engaged in some really skilled bodily experimentation. So they they altered their diets or they altered something that they were doing that would give them a little clue into what was going on so they could bring that as further evidence um, to their doctor's appointments. And then they also would be really strategic in how they acted at the doctor's appointment. So for example, some of them learned that if they were dealing with what they were pretty sure was gender bias, that if they brought their husband with them, and this is something that journalist Maya Dusenberry found. She wrote a book on on this topic also that she's like, all these women are saying, you know, the minute I show up with this dude, all of a sudden they believe me. But the women in my study also said the same thing that, you know, I brought him as my character witness, as one of the women said. Uh, I, I attest to the fact that my wife is not having panic attacks, that this is there's something going on here. And um, one woman whose story was also very memorable had talked about how she, her doctor told her that her weight was the problem, that she had anxiety, that um, in her charts, they had written that her opinion should be taken with a grain of salt because she was, quote, neurotic. And her mom uh, went with her to the doctor's appointment and said, I don't really, really care if you think this is in her head. It's not. Whatever is happening has a name and you're going to help us find out what it is. So that other person there, uh, you know, a woman showing up in the ER with excruciating pain and and the doctor with endometriosis and the doctor saying to her oh periods are painful get over it and the mom going look I know my daughter she has a really really high threshold for pain so just the presence of this other person seemed to make a difference and this other really really cool woman that I got to talk with who has lupus she said that getting to her diagnosis, it was really helped when she would emphasize her day-to-day impairment. So she would say, and she would tailor it to who she was talking with. So if she was with a female doctor and it was clear that the woman had a really nice blowout, she would say, hey, you know, I get so fatigued, I can't even blow dry my hair. Can you imagine not being able to blow dry your hair? But if it was a, a man, she would say something different. So she would try to figure out what would be a thing for them to actually empathize with what I'm going through and to understand how much is this, this is really, really impacting my, my day-to-day life. And then a, a sort of like, an interesting thing too, was that this woman, Gretchen, I was able to speak with, she said, you know, sometimes I, I would pretend to be stupid. And that's, and she's like, I know it sounds awful, but she was like, I really didn't want to die. She's like, I, I knew something else was going wrong. I felt like anytime that a test came back that wasn't what they thought. It was more evidence to them that I was nuts and that I was not going to be able to convince them. So I would just, um, you know, let them laugh at me, laugh at myself and and sort of play dumb and then sort of present them with an idea, but ha- get them to sort of believe it was their idea. Like, oh, gee, um, I don't know, little me, but like, is there a test that anyone knows how to do that would figure out this? And she said that that tactic was um, better. And, and again, she's like, I'm a feminist. This doesn't make me feel great, but it, it, it was effective in, in, in this really dire circumstance where I was just really hoping that I wasn't going to die. Um, so those were some of the things. And then obviously, patients mm-hmm. talked a lot about becoming their own advocate and uh, learning to collaborate with care providers. So there was a woman who was having all these weird symptoms and her general care doctor was like, well, that's depression. And it was actually her psychiatrist that was able to step in and collaborate with her and say to the GP, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm very familiar with her depression. And I, I have that, well, I have that under control with my treatments. 
Whatever these symptoms are, are new and different and they're physical and you need to get to the bottom of it. So those are some examples, I think, of of what you can do if you feel like you're not being believed. Do you have any thoughts about how medical schools and training areas and even individuals in the medical profession might work to counteract these beliefs? Well, one thing I'll say is that there are a lot of care providers that are very well aware of various forms of bias and are and work in their day-to-day practice to to work against those impulses and to be, you know, reflective and and to make sure that they're treating each patient like a, a brand new case and and not letting sort of what they think of that person in the background influence the the conversation that they have with them and, and the course of treatment. Um, and I do know that there are uh, anti-bias trainings already in place in in medical schools. So I think that's a good thing. And I think they're probably, I, I don't know this for sure, but I imagine they're increasing. So that's a good thing. And I think for individual care providers, I think it's just, and any even for any of us in any profession, you know, so I teach these students, then I have to be aware of the possibility that any kind of bias could creep in even really mundane things. Like I had an awful boyfriend in college and his name was Kevin. So if I have a student named Kevin, am I automatically biased against him? Cause I hate that name. Right. <laughs> but I think we all in everyday life have to be aware of our biases and how they affect the way we deal with other human beings. So I think that that's just true in, in the medical profession in a different kind of a way, but there's all kinds of ways that we all do damage, right? Because as a professor, if I were to exhibit bias and maybe grade someone more harshly because of some, factor that they can't that has nothing to do with their effort or their their merit in the class then that would do damage it's just that in the case of medical care the damage can be obviously a lot more profound if we're talking about you know life and death so i think for anyone just being aware of bias in its various forms and and being willing to do the work in their in your everyday life of trying to work against those impulses well Catherine malloy thank you for talking with me on with good reason Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me. I enjoyed it. Catherine Malloy is a professor of writing, rhetoric, and technical communication at James Madison University. Oftentimes, the people who are most affected by decisions in healthcare settings have the least power to make those decisions. Erica Lewis is a nursing professor at James Madison University. She studies how something called design thinking can transform the lives of both patients and healthcare providers. I'm fascinated that design thinking really starts with empathy. Yeah, so design thinking begins with empathy and really circles back to empathy at every stage. So um, design thinking goes through the steps of empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test, but really always comes back to that empathy of the persons who are going through the challenge that you're working on. Um, I had a a group of students working on food insecurity problems, and they had um, been assigned to work with children. And in their work with children, they had come up with this kind of idea on their own that they wanted to implement, um, making the bags that were sent home with children from schools more visually appealing. And they wanted to kind of create this cool, noticeable, um, neat thing that they sent home with the students. And that was food that they were sending home? Yeah. So students are in Virginia are given food to take home, and the student group was you know, tasked at improving that experience for the students. And they had come up with this idea of making this more kind of child-friendly bag um, or even a backpack, okay. something that was kind of special for the children. Then through doing these empathy-gaining, you know, conversations with children and with folks who worked in this area, they discovered that there was a lot of bias in distributing food to children in our school systems and that creating something that called more attention to that uh, may not be the best way to overcome the bias. So they needed to be able to, to listen to that and understand it and change their solution and ultimately ended up creating some videos with nutrition information and um, recipes that they as college students recorded and just kind of casually mentioned that the foods that 
they were using in these recipes were foods that were available for take home from the food pantries and really just normalizing it, not making a big deal of it and having it be part of what was presented to any kid that was looking for a nutritious recipe. And that's an example of where a student team, you know, started out with an idea they thought was good from their own experience, but really listened to the people that were involved in the challenge and changed to create something that I think was better in the long run for tackling the problem they were working on. Have you ever had reaction from the nurses or the nursing students to say, this was actually useful to me in the work setting also? Yeah, so students are often kind of engaged by it. And this particular student was a graduate student. She'd been a nurse for a long time and she was coming back for her nurse practitioner degree. And she went through the design thinking training and needed to do these interviews as part of gaining empathy and understanding the people's experience to work on this problem of addiction that the team was working on. She initially emailed me and said, I just, I don't know if I can do 10 interviews. Um, And I encouraged her to, you know, push through that and, um, and she did. And at the end of the class, she emailed me back and she said, hey, I want you to know I did three extra interviews. And I, I said, why? You know. And it was through conversations with her about that that I heard her say that these interviews she had done were different than the way she normally talked to patients. She said, I've never before had a chance to sit down and really hear the full experience from a patient. I work with patients every day. They tell me what's you know, the specific thing that they've come to the doctor's office for, but I don't just sit and listen and hear their perspective on the context and what's happened to them in the past and this broader story about um, why they're struggling. And she found that to be so impactful that she actually did these three extra interviews because um, she wanted to know more and she wanted to lean in. She ended her email by saying, I'm not going to practice medicine the same way. I'll forever practice medicine differently. And that really illustrated to me the impact that a process like design thinking can have on, you know, not just new students um, or students who are new to the profession, but folks who've been in the profession for a long time. What is it about healthcare? Is it the patients themselves that make it so particularly useful for design thinking? Because you're saying design thinking puts a spotlight on all the people that are involved in a problem, not just the problem solvers. Right. So design thinking forces us to think about all of the folks who have a piece in the puzzle that of the challenge you're trying to solve. And we oftentimes jump to our own ideas of the problem without taking that time to really listen to others and you know hear their perspective. So I think that's a very unique aspect of design thinking. Do you feel that it's good for nurses also? Because sometimes I think they think their voices aren't heard. Yeah, I do think it's good for nurses. Um, it can be very empowering. Um, we talked to students who've graduated from our program who took an innovation course and who are working, and they give examples of um, how having participated in an innovation course using design thinking strengthened their confidence in their leadership and strengthened not just their professional understanding of their skill set and what they brought professionally to a situation, but also their personal skill set and who they are were as a human in that situation and how to leverage those skills in a group and be a leader. And to me, that's really impactful. I've had a few students who've um, who I've talked to after they graduated and shared experiences, um, you know, ranging from this was what gave me the confidence to apply to be a team leader in my job, um, to a really specific situation where a nursing student graduate told me about walking into a um, resuscitation attempt that was very chaotic, and she was not the most experienced person in the room, but she saw the chaos and realized that the situation required some leadership and stepped up to take lead of that um, resuscitation attempt and organize it. And when a more experienced person walked into the room who was also able to lead, she handed off to them a organized, controlled situation. Now, that's something we would expect of a experienced nurse, but to have a new nurse do that is pretty remarkable. And in her reflection on why she could do that, she said it was her clinical training that gave her her confidence in her clinical thinking, but it was her um, experience with the innovation framework that gave her the confidence that she could step up and actually take the lead. 
Do you think it even gave you more confidence when you first learned design thinking? Um, it definitely gave me words for things that I had often thought were important. Um, yeah. Things like, you know, thinking about lots of different solutions. Well, it just never really made sense to sit in my office by myself and try and come up with a solution to a problem and then just go with that first thing that I thought of, which is really how a lot of us do problem solving in our own lives and professionally. But design thinking gave me this way of understanding that um, it was really important to you know, not just do the first thing that came to mind and not just solve a problem by thinking about my own perspective of it, but to gain this perspective of a broad group of folks. And then also to keep thinking of solutions until you know, it came up with something that really was going to hopefully work. Have you ever found yourself using it even as a mother within your own family? Yeah, you know, there's lots of problem solving to be done as a parent of two teenagers. You know, throughout the pandemic, especially when there was two teenagers and me at home and we were trying to figure out how are we doing this online learning, I think it was my experiences with design thinking that helped me to pause and hear their perspectives um, before just saying, hey, I'm the boss, we're going to do it this way. And, And, you know, that kind of changes the conversation with your kids and especially with your teenagers who really need to have that voice and be able to have some input on what's going on. Erica Lewis, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Erica Lewis is a nursing professor at James Madison University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costa are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>